Hey there, I'm Aubrey Hicks, Executive Director of the Bedrosian Center, and you are listening to the Book Club Podcast. Uh, last few months, we've read a few books. So in All We Can Save and Emergent Strategy, we thought about how connection and building relationships can help us imagine and build better futures. In July, we're thinking about how stories, how do they remain alive? In The Shadow of the Wind, we talked about how the story within the story affected the protagonist's conception of reality, how the history of an author in this fictional world became our narrator's lived experience. Today, we're looking at a different kind of storytelling. We're looking at the stories that are told in museums and galleries. Dan Hicks's The Brutish Museums focuses on the Benin bronzes and what the history of those objects and the way they are displayed represent a continued colonial violence. Thank you. And with me today to discuss this book uh, is a fabulous panel. So first we have uh, Jen Bravo. Can you tell our listeners who you are, uh, what you do, and why you chose to read this book? Absolutely. Thanks so much, Aubrey. I'm Jen Bravo. I am an alum of the USC Price School uh, in public policy from way back in the day. And I run my own consulting firm and I've been working in climate resilience in Los Angeles County for the past couple of years. Um, I was really interested in reading this book because I have a background in anthropology and archaeology. That's what my undergraduate degree is in. And I'm really interested in how those fields can be spaces and sort of create spaces and help create processes for cultural restitution and really addressing at a very core level um, restorative justice and how we legitimately address our past so that we can move forward into a healthier, more resilient future for everybody. Thank you. Um, And next, David Sloan. Can you tell our listeners who you are, what you do, and why you chose to read this book? I'm David Sloan. I'm a professor in the Price School in the Department of Urban Planning and Spatial Analysis. I read this book because Aubrey asked me to. Uh, <laughs> no, I read this book partially for two or three reasons. One, uh, my wife, the artist Anne Bray, uh, my former doctoral student, Brittany Shannon, and I are finishing a book about socially engaged art in Los Angeles. Um, we hope to have it ready to be published sometime next year. Um, and so this is one of the first books we've had in a long time that's explicitly about art. So I thought that would be really interesting. Second, I'm an historian and uh, am fascinated by the way that history is manipulated and told and chronicled. And I think this, I thought this book and, and now think this book would deal with that. And then third, the whole idea of restitution is Jen who was in my class, <laughs> even though she was a public policy student. Um, the whole idea of restitution and the uh, American inability to think about restitution in ways that, say, the Germans are doing um, is something which I, I find compelling to think about. And Donna Jean, can you tell our listeners who you are, what you do uh, at the Price School, and um, why you chose to read this book with us? Sure. My name is Donna Jean Ward. Um, I'm in the Dean's office here at the Price School, and I work on the diversity and inclusion um, projects and um, other special projects to be, you know. Um, So a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I read the book because you 
asked me to. <laughs> it was really interesting. And um, I have, um, I, I, I spent a lot of years at a rare book um, library, uh, the Folger, the Folger Library, um, which is um, more about theater and um, uh, Shakespeare and everything. And so that's where I was before I came here. So talking about um, history, it's nothing like, you know, <laughs> David has a lot more, um, knows a lot about, about history, but um, I, you know, I know what's, you know, a little bit about um, old stuff. So, yeah. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. David, do you have something prepared for a summary? I do. <laughs> Uh, so my, it, you know, it's that funny thing you keep asking me, but it's one of the ways that I finish reading most anything is to try and think about what is my summary of it for me. Dan Hicks, the British Museum is a deeply researched and angry argument for the moral need to return from Britain to Nigeria, the Benet bronzes, brass plaques, who were looted in 1897 by a British, quote, punitive expedition, end quote. The book exhaustively chronicles the context of the looting. Very soon after it occurred, the media, government, and museum curators created a myth surrounding the destruction of Benet City as a legitimate act of retribution for a quote-unquote massacre and as a way to destroy a slave-holding cannibalistic fetish society. Hicks persuasively blows up this myth, demonstrating the expedition was simply another of Britain's quote-unquote small wars intended to support colonial imperialism. The story moves on through some harrowing details of murder, rape, and demolition before getting to a second theme, the efforts by contemporary museums to justify retaining rather than returning the looted goods. The book is not an easy read. At times, the list of military weapons gets a little tedious. It, it interrogates a wide range of issues relevant to governance, philanthropy, race, and culture. Thank you. <laughs> I woke up thinking this morning, I was like, um, David should write the blurbs for all the books. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> you know, when, when I looked at this book, um, you know, I, I choose the books mostly before reading them. And, um, you know, I thought um, pairing, you know, I paired this with um, a novel that's um, 20 years old and it's a story within a story. And I thought that, you know, part of what I wanted to get at is how, you know, as, as Utah Phillips said, the past didn't go anywhere and how stories sort of both sort of perpetuate myth, but also change depending on who's telling the story. Um, and I thought it would be really interesting to think about how objects also tell stories. I feel like I was not disappointed. <laughs> There's so much in this book. Uh, before we got on, I think Jen and I were, were talking about how just it, there's so much <laughs> in this book. That's really it's dense. It's really dense. So I guess, you know, and you got to it um, in your summary, David. Um, but let's really talk about what the purpose of this book is, because I think that will get us sort of into some of the ideas. Well, I'll start very quickly and say it's an act of betrayal. Dan Hicks is a curator at a very famous, the Pitts River uh, Anthropology Museum in, uh, in Britain. And this is really him saying that he shouldn't have his job. 
that all the things should go back to where they belong. And uh, it's uh, fascinating to watch a professional sort of not commit suicide, but in some sense, reject the one of the fundamental parts of, of his job and of his training and who he is. So I thought that was one of the most fascinating things about it because he's clearly angry, angry at himself for what he does and uh, translate that beautifully into a complicated story. Yeah. And all of his contemporaries, right? I think one of the themes, and it's something that he starts the book with that I really thought was fascinating is this concept of workers investigating their own workplaces and the concept of history being written by people who have a level of technological expertise, but turning that inward versus turning it outward. And I I agree with David that there is there is clearly anger and there's sort of sadness and in ways sort of like a deep regret and a need to challenge all of the propaganda and justification that has been built up over the years to justify why um, these museums should continue to exist the way they are. And the way the museum has been reframed over time to sort of say, oh, well, you know, now we're just world we're world culture museums and and not get into it all the provenance of the objects, the the ways in which the museums were, you know, instrumental in the acts themselves, not some sort of byproduct of empire, but core tools of empire. I really thought it was fascinating and I thought he didn't pull any punches. And in a way it made it much more valuable of a work to me that he was being so deeply honest about his own field. I love that line. There are no foreigners here <laughs> yeah. in a world museum. Yeah. 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 The way he called out um, William Fagg, uh, William, I don't, the, the, the curator of the British Museum for you know a period of time um, and his sort of rewriting of uh, the history of the Binion sculptures. Um, that was, wow. <laughs> Yeah, You were going to say something. I interrupted you, Don June. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, you know, his anger, you know, is, you know, at the front of it, you know, in every chapter. And um, yeah, so I think he was um, really needed. I got the sense his own need to get this out, you know, um, which is not like, you know, I'm sure other people, you know, have had conversations about it, but it felt like, he needed to sort of, that's why it's so dense because like he couldn't like let any small thing go and let, let me tell you about this one, you know, and it would go on and on and on. And then it was like, and then this happened. And then, so, um, yeah. Yeah. He clearly felt a moral imperative like for himself personally uh, and also like for the field, I think. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I sort of think, um, you know, he's the way he speaks and um, seems really similar to me. Um, in a different field, the way Jody Armour talks about um, sort of the way we really need to change our criminal justice system. And, you know, that we have this history of retribution and violence, and we really need to reframe it um, moving forward. And, and to me, you know, that anger is all there to really lay out the moral imperative to change the curator's job. And that seemed to me just really, really powerful. I mean, he calls out so many people. Um, he calls out other curators, existing live today curators. Um, but I also think he calls in curators to say, you know, what is our next step? 
we have to we have to write not write the wrong but repair to the extent possible and reframe going forward build relationships and and really think about I mean, the thing about the thing about it too it's like it's not just about um it's not just about the museums muse his museum or even the um the you know the benin the the pieces there i mean i think he's just talking about just sort of like you know you know museums in general like you know um there's sort of a critique there even though that i think you know um one of the things that's really interesting is that like, you know, Benin or Nigeria, you know, is building, you know, um, a new museum and hoping, right? Um, I think to sort of repatriate, is that the right way to call it? To have the um, the pieces, you know, there in Nigeria, you know, so is that, you know, I wonder what he thinks. I mean, should we have more um, museums or less of them or, you know, I don't know. I think he was saying in one place um, that no museum should have objects that are stolen. And so I think his argument would probably be, yeah, that those objects should all be repatriated back to, you know, the people of what is now Nigeria as part of their cultural tradition, their history, the the artifacts actually document their the history of the royal courts. Um, and that one thing I think is interesting about that question is that it's not like the museums don't already have practices for repatriation because they already are repatriating human remains and they are repatriating things that were acquired during settler colonialism. And I think there's a really interesting distinction he draws between settler colonialism and sort of this militarist corporatist colonialism, which is this period of history that he was so right on and it kind of floored me when I was reading it. There's this big gap in in our histories. It's sort of like, especially like in, in the, the history that, that Britain tells about itself. It's like, you know, um, emancipation of slaves in the colonies, 1838. And then you sort of don't really have very much until the Boer War and then World War One, And we sort of pick up the story again. And like what was happening in that time period was a different kind of colonialism and the justifications for that and how the museums are are not treating that as something that needs to be repaired, as something that needs to be um, returned or even explored is really interesting. I liked how he said it was a Queen Victoria-sized hole in the... Yeah. <laughs> At the same time, just really quickly to complexify that, the Oba of Benet believes this doesn't belong to Nigeria. It belongs to him. Yeah. yeah. And this is one of the complications of this cultural milieu we're in where what is okay and what is not okay and who who owns things and who controls things and what should, how should we act? Because the, the government in Nigeria is saying, give them back to us. The Oba is saying, give them back to me. I am the Oba. Uh, and so there's going to be conflicts all the way along. Each mm -hmm. of these things is a conflict in the restitution. I did think that one of the things I liked best about the book is the way he ends it, where he talks about how restitution is not subtraction, but that you can actually build a museum that isn't about stealing things, um, that you can build a museum in a with a different narrative. And I do think that's a powerful message, as Jen suggests, that's part of the book, this idea of this 
of these multiple narratives that he layers on um, as he moves through this through this story and uh, trying to figure out how Pitts Rivers can tell that story as a curator, um, I think is a really fascinating thing. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, as I was reading, you know, one thing that I felt was left out, but I know why he left it out. You know, he doesn't really talk about um, contemporary Nigeria. He doesn't really talk about the inhabitants of um, Benin city um, as much as I would like, because this is a history of British colonial violence. And so there, I did, I have to say, like, I, I wonder why he left that out. I mean, you know, when you now, especially that you say it, you know, cause it really, you know, um, articles just recently, like in the last couple of weeks, you know, um, um, have been, you know, talking about some repatriation of pieces and the building and the, I'm going to remember the name of this. I didn't, I know I'm going to name, remember his name. So I kept it. Um, the architect, um, the Nigerian architect, uh, David Adaye. And um, he also did the African-American museum on the, on the mall here in DC, not in over there in DC. Um, and so there was an article, you know, and so some of the um, pieces will come back as loan or whether they're going to be bought or things like that. But um, I, I wonder why he, again, like why he would not talk about that. Um, and because I don't think it was that new, but um, but I think, you know, obviously he's, he's looking at the, he's not really necessarily it, it having a critique about, well, he think he is having a critique about museums in general, but um, I don't know if what's, did he feel like he couldn't be critical of Nigeria and what they're doing? I don't know. It's a, it's such a good question. It's interesting. It makes me think about, you know, what David just said about the layers of complexity here, because like the, the nation states in Africa exist in many ways because of the colonial um, breaking up of the continent at the at the Berlin conference right and sort of like which colonial powers had power over which places and and that that breaking up and destruction was I think I think um, Hicks uses the word democide right so like the specific targeting and killing of people for the destruction um, sort of I think mostly for political purposes of certain groups of people and the destruction of the royal court in particular, right? And so there's an interesting distinction here to be made between like the British colonial violence against the royal court of Benin as a way to destroy that entire society as being a really different power structure and different set of sort of political and cultural considerations than the modern state of Nigeria, right? And so it raises a really interesting question about um, like, like David said, about the layers of complexity and conflict at sort of each stage of this repatriation. Yeah, but at the same time, I think it would have made the book untenable right. to try and talk about the controversies that are going to happen in Nigeria and already have begun. Yeah, I think he needs to keep focused on Britain and the lack of British truth and British willingness to, to come to that truth. But he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't leave it at the British, you know, he goes through all no, Europe. Yeah, 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 and all the U.S., the whole deal, right? 
I'm not he's arguing from the colonial perspective. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. What is what is required of the former colonies? But I think that if he tried to do Nigeria, he'd need another eighty-page chapter. At least it's already, it's already so there. dense. <laughs> There's already so much going so on, much. and yeah. in cases, I'm like, we are getting down into like the nitty-gritty detail. I I thought it was really valuable to have so much primary source material, like you know, copied word for word um, so that we can actually see in people's own words. I mean, I have many places in this book where I just have exclamation points and like the word obscene written like <laughs> next to whole sections um, of this book because I'm like, oh, oh, they knew what they were doing. It's clear. They were talking exactly about the, the purpose of what they're doing. And they talk specifically about then the propaganda and the justification to you know, make it look like they're not doing what they're doing. Well, I think also, you know, um, I think a big part of what he's doing is trying to break down sort of that myth that, that colonial empires have told themselves ourselves that, you know, it's in the past and we're done, you know, and that what he's saying is that it is not in the past that, you know, and that is part of why we can't reach this state of restitution, because we keep saying it's in the past, it's done. And yet, the more we sort of prop up this myth by not speaking the truth, you know, in our displays and keeping, you know, these looted objects that are, that come out of so much death and misery, um, that it, it, that the ongoingness is also, uh, you know, really part of why he's so angry, you know, and when we, when we're thinking about what's going on in our culture today, you know, there is this sense of like, no, that's in the past. That's not who we are. And yet we're all still living with this sense that it, it's ongoing. It isn't in the past. And if we just ignore it, you know, it's never going to be fixed. We're going to keep coming back to this point of conflict. It, it is that, but I think there's another piece. Mm -hmm that's even uh, for him more frightening than our willingness to forget. And that is that we've, the British and everyone else has created this, this myth of justification. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Not that we're just forgetting. Yeah. yeah. We didn't do anything wrong. Right. Yeah. That's, yeah. Right? That's what I was going to say. It wasn't really like about forgetting. It's sort of like making a new, narrative of the past yes you know and reifying yeah, right. that you know, they were you know human sacrifice there was this you know it was all these horrible things and you know we were there and saw all the horrible things and so we had to sort of like you know get, we had to do something do something and you know and take you know the, the all the things. things that like they had managed to have there for you know i mean i you know human sacrifice, I'm not on board for that either, you know, but um, that wasn't why you took all the, the art, right. right? You know, right. you took all you the art. You didn't stop so. the people from be getting killed. Right. If the Oba hadn't stopped you from getting rubber and ivory, you would have been fine. Yeah. I mean, it, the moment that it became totally absurd for me and just, I jumped out of my chair and like Jen, I just like... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, explanation was on page 220 when the Blair government, oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. our buddy Tony Bill Blair, you know, really good liberal guy, um, says slavery is not 
wasn't bad. It was legal. It was legal. I don't have to apologize for what was legal. And that idea that they paid them 20 million pounds in compensation to the slave owners. And you're thinking, what did the slaves get? (laughs) And it took them from 1842 to 2015 to pay it off. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Astonishing. I mean, there were so many places in this book where I thought you've got, you've got to be kidding me. Like, but obviously I, I know it's real, but it's just so obscene and so in your face. Like this 2016 quote yeah. from Professor John Boardman at the University of Oxford with the Benin bronzes, the rape proved to be a rescue. Yeah, I wrote I was yeah. like that. It, I'm sick to my stomach. Like that's obscene. And it's, it's throughout. It's throughout the history. It's actually the same story that was told at the time that we are still telling. And and, you know, it's the creation of a golf course on top of the place where the sacred tree was. I was like, are you kidding me? They know what they're yeah. doing. That is yeah. a way to denigrate. That is a way to destroy and show your dominance over is to take a thing that was sacred to these people and build your entertainment on top of its ruins. Your goofy entertainment. And so, yeah. And so it's like, it's like the concept of time and the way time is is discussed in this book, I think is maybe one of the most fascinating things for me about the book, which is sort of summed up in, in one of the chapter titles is 10,000 unfinished events. Like these objects are not objects that are frozen at a period of time that we look at, at in the past. They are actually representative and recreating the unfinished events every time they're witnessed and like every time the story about them is retold and we are retelling every day a false history, a set of propaganda over and over and over. And so these museums that pride themselves on somehow being these like neutral containers for the world's history are actually tools still of empire retelling these same stories over and over and recreating the violence every day like that that discussion of time i just thought was fascinating yeah yes that chapter on chrono politics i thought was the best chapter it's just so it is powerful as jen suggested really gets at the issues of not just then not just afterwards but now in very powerful ways so um let's talk about chrono politics what when he says that what does that mean what is what makes up chrono politics if I'm remembering correctly, <laughs> yeah, there's so much. It's it's essentially the use of of time and not just territory as like um, an arena of control or power, right? So it is the ability of the the powerful or the quote victors to not only control physical space but to control time and how things are told and how things are actually reordered in the past to make these justifications. So there was like a whole like like fracturing of time and reordering propaganda and making up stories as they went to sort of create this this soup of justification. Yeah, I think that's where also his his very long really getting into, you know, this idea of the so-called punitive expedition, you know, right. that but, you know, uh, have on page um, page 180 he he first brings up chronopolitics and he talks about it and Jen put it well. Um, It's actually got two or three pieces. One is um, somehow one part of history is denied a place 
right? And then um, another part is collapsed space into time. So that it appeared that the further from the metropolis the European traveled, the further back in time they went until reaching the Stone Age in Tanzania. And so it's this combination of both um, denying time, the 10,000 events, and collapsing time to the events you want to everybody remember, which is the punitive expedition. Mm -hmm. And the two work together to create this almost impossible barrier to actually having a conversation about what ha actually happened. Mm -hmm. I think there's another part too. I love that, David. There's a part on page 185. And this was, I actually thought maybe this was going to be like my favorite passage when Aubrey asks us <laughs> at the end of the podcast to say like which things we'd like. So it's the top of page, page 185. And it is a discussion about how a living, vibrant culture is destroyed in order to place it into the past. And the artifacts of it are then displayed almost contemporaneously with other like non-European ancient artifacts to show that these are actually primitive archaeological cultures in, and, and shown in relief to like forward-oriented European cultures, right? So even though these were, were cultures that were existing at the same time in, in linear time, the act of the destruction to basically, it's very much like that bomb them back to the Stone Age kind of mentality that we still hear in, in modern military terminology. The creation of, of the destruction that places them in the past and then showing it on a daily basis as if it is from the past and therefore primitive and therefore, you know, so different from us. And how it serves so many different purposes, you know, on that page also, you know, on 184, he's talking about the object lesson that, you know, um, and who who is getting the lesson, you know? So on one hand, it's, you know, if you defy us, we're going to destroy the city and we're going to put you back in the Stone Age and we're going to take all your stuff and we're going to put it on display to keep dehumanizing. And then it's also, you know, to the visitor who has never been to Africa um, is being told this propaganda. So it's an object lesson in so many different ways. And it's this controlled narrative and you know dan hicks is saying that the curator has been a part of this weaponry well that was the one of the things about the the whole small war things yeah which we, we, we should probably talk about more but one of the things i thought was fascinating about the, the small war discussion was how the press sort of pushed this idea mm -hmm. but it wasn't the london press <laughs> it was Glasgow and Liverpool. And, you know, we forget that these were the great ports from which all these trading companies pushed goods, uh, pushed people out into everything, everywhere from India to Africa, uh, Asia to Africa, and then brought stuff back. And so their economy, there's an economy behind this that is unbelievably powerful in in shaping how we view each of these events. Mm -hmm. And it's very, uh, as Jen and Donna Jean have both said, it's very calculated. Mm -hmm. This is all just set up. Yeah, right? the, I felt like there was a whole nother book to be told about Laura Shaw. Oh uh, yeah. The, you know, That's the woman right. who was like writing, yeah. uh, I mean, which I was like, wow, woman, right? But still, <laughs> you know, but she was just like making the narrative and putting it out there like, you know, and, and, you know, these, it, it was, 
it was so calculated. I just thought she was fascinating. Yeah. I, I actually went and read a bunch of stuff by her. Really? Yeah, I was, that was, it's on my list. It's like, it's my, I, I, I'm thinking I, I, there's gotta be a book about her somewhere or something. Cause it's like, <laughs> uh, you know, first I was kept thinking like, wow, it's a woman and she's, do, you know, like they're, yeah, they're isn't that things, you know, it's uh <laughs> What is it like 1890s? Laura Ingram of the but, um, You know, I'd never heard of her, but she sounds like a horrible person. But still, I'm still fascinated and I want to know more about her. You know, how did she get, you know, she was so calculated, you know, like she had everything written out before the event happened. happened. Yeah. Yeah. You so, know, so like, like the, here you go. You know, I mean, it seems like she was part of the, the corporation's PR machine before. The yeah. Yeah. PR, you know. Well, yeah. she was married to one of the guys. Yeah, yeah that's how yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about the economic goals, um, I think is so important and so interesting because it it really reminds me actually of, of some stuff that Ibram X. Kendi has written about how racial ideas come into being. Mm-hmm. And that racial ideas are actually developed after the fact to justify the yeah. actions right. taken for economic benefit. And I saw so much of that reflected here. Like the ultimate goals were rubber and palm oil and a bunch of other, you know, raw materials and resources following the emancipation, like the end of the of the slave trade from the British side. And, and then then what they have to do is develop sets of justifications to explain away the terrible behaviors. And so it's the development of concepts of, of the the cannibalism and the fetish power structures and the the slave the, the fact that they that the people in West Africa were continuing to engage in a slave trade with no acknowledgement that the British had been the ones who built that entire system and that entire structure it was now used as a justification to destroy and who was you know and also like you know who was asking for the slaves, right? You know, like, oh, please send me X number, you know. Um, you know, they talk about the homie who was like, kind of like, they're like, sure, we can, you know, th- that was their, their. Um, that's what they did there was basically capture, you know, black people and send them out into slavery to the, to the West, you know. Um, and they're mentioned all the time in this book. And I was like, um, that's pretty, you know, so it's not like, you know, there was a ongoing thing with slavery and, but, you know, it's not like the British were like, oh, we should stop doing that. You know, we're not, you know, we're, we're you know, we're not going to do that, but, and, and they're doing it, they're doing it. So we, you know, so obviously they, you know, that's fine, you know, because. Well, it's like switching from being the slavers to all of it, to saying, oh, well, now we have a moral obligation to put an mm-hmm. end to slavery. And then using that as the justification for destruction, but really the the real reason is the economic right, benefit. Exactly. Yeah. I thought it was just a awful example of the the use of uh, progressive pol- politics to support oh, yeah. repressive activity. Uh, it's just you know militaristic humanitarianism and it made me think about how we do that today we do that still today um and you look at the wars for oil and how those are framed as humanitarian wars there's so many parallels i was thinking again of jody armor who's been tweeting the last few days about how 
hate crime bills are very popular among progressives because they think they'll protect women and others. And then they're used by police to attack women or others who they want to jail. And uh, it is this thing where it, it, it's it, you get frustrated with the idea of what do we do that these people can't manipulate into what they want, into a power structure of the, to support what they their sort of anti-progressive movements. And this was a really with domestic terrorism laws. Yep. We're seeing those applied to people defending native lands yep. and fighting pipelines and things. I mean, the fact that just two weeks ago, maybe, or less than that, a woman whose name I can't remember had the domestic terrorism charge added yeah. to her charge. They're using it to defend anyone who challenges corporate profits. Right. So if you put corporate profits at threat, you may now be charged with domestic terrorism. Yeah. And this is, I mean, this is a great, I mean, these small wars are that sort of the foundation of that attitude. You know, we're going to go in and have we're just going to do punitive expedition over after punitive expedition because these people just need to get their acts together. And the way they're going to get their acts together is to act like us and they can't act like us. So we're just going to kill them. <laughs> there are so many places where the British describe what they're doing as peace, justice, yeah. equity, yeah. and truth, security. Truth and beauty. Yeah. And I was like, oh, so many parallels. Yeah. I mean, this is where this comes from, right? This is actually the legacy that we're seeing reenacted over and over and over today. It didn't go anywhere. It never does, right? And, you know, because yeah. as long as, yeah. The same power structures. Yeah. yeah. And thinking about BP being a um, sponsor of the British Museum <laughs> displays, I thought was fascinating. Because, you know, we go through this whole history of, of basically learning about these you know, these chartered companies, the Royal Niger Company and others who actually had their own armies and were engaged in military operations. Um, they knew that they knew what they were doing and the British government knew what they were doing. And in many cases, the British protectorates and the charter companies together. would act together. They would have like joint military operations. So this sort of merging of, of corporate and militaristic, you know, um, goals and, and endeavors. And then we see that reflected in the modern era with corporate and government structures united to continue to tell that history, that false history, that those false narratives, while we're still engaged in the same kinds of, of behaviors around oil and other kinds of resource extraction. I'm getting kind of riled up. <laughs> Not surprised, but no, riled I mean, up, And he know? draws that, that, perfect parallel between, uh, you know, on page um, 223, 224, he says, you know, uh, the ongoing effects of institutional racism, the brutish worldview of the military victory of civilization over the primitive, drawn out into the present through the museum as an oblique weapon to the extraction of fossil fuels, the desertification to mass extinctions, climate change, an oil spill, nuclear waste, deforestation, the erasure of traditional land management practices. The, he goes on and on and on. on. Yeah. yeah. The concept of slow violence, which I think is so important yeah. to think about. Yeah. Um, and the, and uh, the silence of, you know, he says silently enacted through environments upon the poor across the global South. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, and, and the complicity of institutions like museums in that silence, because, you know, refusing to, diverge from the propaganda 
Well, as he calls out accurately, the, the museums are white infrastructure, right? The museums were, were essentially developed and maintained to maintain a white supremacist power structure by telling the, those stories, those narratives that support those beliefs and, and systems. Oh, I would say, you know, the, the end, we're now near the end of the book in 220-ish. But the, the part of the book that is most harrowing for me is when it's not silent. It's not, you know, yeah. implicit. It's, you know, these guys just running amok uh, among Africans, raping, pillaging, murdering, that seeming just completely un, with, with no conscience. Actually, they have a conscience, and the conscience is that what they're doing is good supposedly. Yeah. I can't believe they actually believe that, but it's amazing to me that this can be true. But because it's that's the narrative that's always been about Africa. I mean, you could, you know, and you yeah. know, and, and Africa, you know, with all of these different dates, tribes, whatever, you know, it's all just like painted in one thing and it's always the negative, right? Yes. Oh, you know the degenerate. They're, yeah, they're just you know half people running around, you know, who need to be, you know, I, I don't, you know, they need you know, to be and, so, and that, but, you know, that's, people still think of Africa that way now, right? Yep. You know, that, you know, most people, if you say Africa, you know, or something, you know, they're thinking like, you know, people, you know, wearing grass, you know, skirts and, and, and I mean, and I'm not kidding. I think a lot of people, if you ask to describe it, that's what they're thinking. They're not thinking about, you know, international um, places and high, you know, that look like, you know, any other like big city or um, it's, yeah, I don't know. There's, it's just so embedded um, all of the sort of, um, it's, yeah, and it's all negative. And, you know, it's, it's all there, and it's all negative. But Donna Jean, the thing, yeah, absolutely correct. But the thing that's amazing is that we're watching as one of the key parts of that narrative is being essentially created by these museums, yeah. Yeah. the media, and others in Britain and across Europe, basically saying Benet is a fetish society. Mm -hmm. Right? They use that word over and mm -hmm. over and over again mm -hmm. as a way to to denigrate them right. and to call them degenerate yeah. so that they need to be destroyed, yeah. essentially. And, uh, you know, you say it enough, it becomes truth, apparently. Um, and we believe that and continue to believe that they somehow saved this society from this awful 15th century long empire. Uh, that had taken care of itself for a really long time and built a remarkable set of artistic and other cultural artifacts. Uh, you know, it is racism is infuriating for lots of reasons, but one of the one of the things that's most infuriating about it is how do you look at the Benet bronzes right. and right. call these people degenerate? Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Like, right. Right. Uh, exactly. Like if it, if, it, if it was so, if it was so, you know backwards then why would you even yeah. take it as a you know tro trophy or you know um and then and if and yeah. yeah and if you believe that then why you know send it back because it's just trash yeah. right <laughs> but it's no, trash. no, no, no now it's you know it's a cultural it's now it needs to Artifact. be protected 
we need to yeah. it can't yeah. be there it yeah. has to be yeah. here because we have you know it's sort of like yeah but it was there for like a pretty long time <laughs> just kind of hanging hanging out you know um they definitely can't protect it once we destroy their cultural heritage no they definitely can't protect it and also all of that speculation about how maybe they didn't really create them themselves. Oh, yeah. yeah. About how maybe yeah, it was yeah. external influence from the Portuguese or others right, yeah. who were able to make those things yeah, in the first place, or maybe it was aliens or something, <laughs> right? Because because we have to destroy any any idea of them being like a fully realized, you know, thriving society on their own so, in order to make things that you in Europe didn't. Able, weren't able to make yeah a thousand years before you did can't have that those earthen works the sacred earthen works i was so fascinated to learn about that like there's just so much that we never learn obviously in school here like our our education (laughs) when it comes to world history is lacking to say the least but i was fascinated learning about that and then how they had to come up with explanations for why it wasn't that special why it wasn't that awesome um you know, so that they could justify destroying it. And they went about destroying it. I mean, that was the thing that amazed you is how systematically they had oh, proof yeah. that this wasn't, you know, it's almost like they tried to erase it. Right. Well, yeah. They had yeah. Lists. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there were to-do lists. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. right. What was the, 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 the list? Yeah, this is, this is a great fortification. You'd think they would actually adapt it and adopt it and take it, but no way, buddy. So it was done by Africans. Yeah, this came the guy, who was the guy who had the diary? And he, and he yeah. Yeah, and it was like, it was like burn the houses, right, he had a destroy list, the yeah. works. Right. Yeah. He was like organized cots for wounded people. It was literally like his task list yeah. for the yeah. day. Um, and so. at the same time, you know, no acknowledgement of the number of people they killed. You know, oh, like, oh yeah. it wasn't even worth. You know, we know exactly yeah. all of the types of guns they had and how much ammunition, and down to you know the the pounds and the the you know the just all those numbers, and yet you know nothing. You know, they they used the Maxim guns and you know mowed people down, and it was like they didn't exist. There, the number of yeah. people you kill is always a complicated thing for soldiers, right? Right. We don't know how many people died in Iraq. We don't know how many people died in Afghanistan. We don't know how many people died in World War II. We don't know how many people, in in some sense, you know, the military has perfected and we're watching it be perfected. This idea that we just, we we can tell you exactly how many English guys died, Mm -hmm. but we don't need to tell you at all about who the combatant. And and that's on purpose. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, thinking about the Vietnam War um, and having read Viet Thanh Nguyen's book, you know, um, how those stories are told and how, you know, we know how many Americans were killed. Um, We have this sense that so many Americans were killed. Um, And it was devastating for Americans. But, you know, you're talking about still, you know, within 100,000. Um, and in Vietnam, three million people. I mean, it's just, you know, and when we talk about COVID today, you know, it's like, oh, you know, it's nothing. It's across the world, the numbers are staggering. Well, I would have to say that 606,000 Americans is staggering. Oh, it I mean, is. That, it I is. Mean, you know, you I know, don't. It, it, we don't. I mean, I, I understand what you mean, Aubrey, but I just mean. It's it's a staggering reality that we kill so many people so so easily, 
whether here or during a war um, or through other way other ways that we you know our failure to get the vaccines to more equitably across the world uh, is just one example of you know what is the cost of a of a malaria drug in Africa. I mean, it's just a, it, it's a constant yeah. thing that people dying seems to be just fine for everybody. It's, for those in power. Yeah. It's fine for those. So my wife has asked me to read, and I'm in the process of reading a book by Frederica, um, sorry, Sylvia Frederica, uh, about the Caliban and the witches, which is about mm. the transition from, uh, medieval Europe to modern Europe and the way that uh, women had to be suppressed to do that. And um, I haven't gotten to the really gory part yet where, you know, they're going to kill like 300,000 women, but um, it, it is, you, you just get these hints and this reminded me of that, right? You know, we need not just to destroy the physical Bene city. We, we, we don't just, have to rent the, the the mounds, these incredible thousand year old heritage. We have to kill everybody. And take away anything just, that could possibly help restore. Memory. Yeah. Yeah. There's an interesting place in the book where he's talking about the destruction of bodies and the destruction of the built environment and the lived environment yeah. and uses Palestine as an example of that happening today. Right. So it's not just, the fighter jets, it's not just the bullets, it's the bulldozers. Right. And I thought that was a really interesting way to bring that into the present for us to see that the full destruction of a people like requires the death of their bodies and the destruction of their material culture and their lived space as yeah. well. Because all of those things together also help destroy the stories. That's exactly right. Um, and you yeah. know, when we talk about confederate monuments or when we talk about right now the the buzzword is critical race theory right if we destroy those stories but just sort of, i i don't know that just every time i hear people talk about that it's like you, it's i don't i <laughs> your brain it's like it's well, why don't we just call it history and then just let it go so but <laughs> it's not history if you talk about the the bad things that <laughs> america did um then it's I mean, the, right. The false narratives are the are the statues that are, are are not of statues of any particular people that are just like you know, um, produced in Indiana and sent down. You know, you just order one. You know, um, that's where those state. You know, they came from. They they weren't like you know somebody from a their town or something like that. You know, that's a false narrative, and it's but nobody even thinks about that. I didn't even know about that until like, you know, somebody I knew who's a historian in like Indiana, he was like, oh yeah, it's all Indiana. <laughs> you just like order one, you know. Um, but those, you know, nobody's taking those down from the, you know, the town square. And you could order a union guy or a Confederate guy. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. He was yeah, like, yeah, you just ordered they're the same. They were like <laughs> it was like, yeah, they're all the same. I mean, not a person. It was just like, you know, go down there. It's just, it's the same. They just ordered one. So it's like the Doughboys after World War Mm -hmm. One. So tell me about that. What do you mean? Is it? So uh, it's a long tradition. That's a long tradition. After the Civil War, there was this effort to memorialize the war in 
just everywhere. And so they put these Union soldiers or these Confederate guys uh, in the town squares. And then after World War One, they did it again oh, oh, with okay. the Dopoy. They came up with the same kind of statue. Oh, got it. Um, they didn't sell as well. I was going to say, I don't think um, I've seen those, but yeah. Uh, they're around. You, you'll, you'll pop up one. But uh, then after World War II, they said, no, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to name our uh, highways after regiments that went to war called Living Memorials. Highways as Living Memorials? Yeah, That's all over there. <laughs> if you drive around Southern California and you really pay attention, almost every highway is memorialized. I'm going to... I'm going to have to look at those. I'm going to start paying attention to that. There's something really interesting we haven't talked about yet that I thought we might want to talk about a little bit is, um, is talked about throughout, but he also has a chapter called White Projection. And it's the concept of reversing the order of victim and aggressor. And this really jumped out at me because I've done uh, a lot of reading about this same phenomenon, but in an individual case, it's actually a psychological phenomenon that's referred to as DARVO, which means deny, attack, reverse victim and offender. And it's something that abusive people do um, to their victims. And I was seeing it played out in this book um, on like a national scale, like as being part of the power structure and part of the way that we build stories and build history and build propaganda to justify negative acts, as Dan Hicks calls them. Um, is to say, oh no, we're actually we're actually the victim. So like, there's a there's some sort of perceived slight, and we now have to defend ourselves against the perceived slight. Never mind that we have all the power, that we have all this technology, that we're actually the ones who maybe manufactured, created the perceived slight in the first place as justification, and therefore whatever follows, it's like you made us do it right? It's very much this abuser mentality of you, you made us do this by, you know, whatever it is I manufactured about you. And I thought that was a really fascinating thing to look at something that I've only thought about on, on the scale of individual sort of interpersonal dynamics, but looking at it on the scale of sociopolitical power structural dynamics. So, you know, it, it, it's, it, it happens more than I think people realize, you know, wars begin, the classic was the assassination of Duke Ferdinand, the reason World War I happened, of course not. But no. it was, <laughs> you know, it was that thing where somebody could say, oh, this shouldn't have happened, so we have to do something. Here, I, I just thought it was, you know, it was brilliantly done. Right, that this guy takes these these nine or ten guys along with his hundred and fifty uh, African carriers, and walks into a place where he's been told, "Don't come, don't, don't right. go there," right. like a hundred times, uh, and just keeps going. And then he gets his butt killed. And you know, it's it, it everything is the, you know we're the victims. We got to do this. We got to kill like thousands of people. And it, because the amazing one thing, white person. Right, you know, is worth a lot more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in this case, that one white person killed him. I mean, essentially, I'm sure he didn't want to die. Yeah, but 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 you know, essentially committed suicide. Well, it was a setup. It's all a setup, right? Because that the destruction of the city had been in planning for years and years, and they'd been talking about it for years and years. And so you just either either it was like 
consciously a setup or it was just like, let's just encourage these sorts of things to happen and then we'll be able to use them as justice. Yeah. It, I, my presumption is it hadn't been this massacre. It would have been something else. You know, it, That's exactly. It, it, I think it's right. meaningless. Uh, it's just a, a meaningful act that allows them to do what they want. And it's just one of those things where they had been told no, right. Or not or nothing. And so you got to figure out some way to sort of like start, you know what I mean? You know, yeah. yeah. So they had to been thinking about it because they didn't like after the first no or the second or the third no, they're like, oh, okay, well, time to go back home. That didn't happen. Yeah. No. I think this reversing of victim and offender is even apparent in the behavior of the museums. And Dan Hicks doesn't really call this out explicitly, but to me, it was pretty implicit that the museums are now in a way framing themselves as like the victim a little bit of like, well, we're just these neutral containers and like we weren't engaged in anything. So like people want to take away our stuff and we have to try to figure out how to defend ourselves. And this whole reversal to me is fascinating because people really buy into it. People really connect to it um, in a way that I think is necessary. We, we have to start unpacking this stuff and say, what active role did people actually play in something? Who is the real, who's the real victim in a given situation? And then how do we make reparations? How do we? Yeah, I thought it was really important how he traced the money of the Pit Rivers, where, where right. the money came from to you know, so-called purchase some of the collections. Some of the collections were just pure loot. Um, and some of them were loot that was purchased. Um, but the purchase money came from slavery. Well, that kind of like excavation of the past is important because the story that's being told is like, well, we had to protect the art. So we saved it. Right from the city's destruction, right? The city was being destroyed, so we had to save all the art. No, that's <laughs> we a lie. destroyed the that's city not. to take the art. To take the art, right? To, and, to, and to hold captive. Like, there's this fascinating part in the book where he talks about objects as parallel to human bodies, mm -hmm. and that holding something captive um, uses somebody's phrase, the social death, right? The social death that occurred for African people under slavery is parallel to the social death that occurs for these objects when they are captured and held. And then a false narrative is told about them over time to sort of recreate that false history. Uh, I mean, it's multiple false narratives, right? I mean, the first yeah, yeah, false yeah. narrative is how we get it. The second false narrative is, well, maybe it was actually Europeans who taught them to do this. Um, the third false narrative is that somehow if we send it back, it's going to get stolen. I mean, it, these are layered on top of each other uh -huh. to protect the interests of first the people doing the looting, second, the people exploiting the land, and then third, the museums. And he, I, I got to say, Hicks's book is is frustrating. Uh, there's, yeah. there's a lot of detail that I didn't really need to know, and I forgot immediately. Um, but uh, I thought he, in, in the end, it's very powerful. He builds this. I think if it had been 50 pages shorter and a little more focused with a, good, a really strong end, it wasn't yeah. just about uh, restitution is not subtraction, which I liked a lot. I like that term. But um, this whole idea of how it worked, I think it would have been stronger. But um, in the end, he does get at a lots of stuff that's just very powerful. Yeah. I felt like 
slightly different editing would have actually made a huge, it would have helped me a lot because I think that there were, there were some sections where I was like, well, this is like a lot more detail than I probably need. But in a way you could tell it's his way of memorializing what's known because in some, at the end, he talks about how in the second edition of this book, he hopes to have the appendices be even more robust about like where the objects are. So some of the stuff I think could have been moved to appendices to sort of streamline the story, like the descriptions of each of the like colonial leaders and, and some other stuff like that. <laughs> a to Z. And then there was a lot of repetition and the repetition around like discussion of like the militarist corporatist structures is really sort of repeated throughout almost all of the chapters, right? And there were some things that were just really, really, um, I thought maybe overly repeated. I would have liked something a bit more streamlined to make it a little bit easier to get through. But by the end, I thought it was so, so, so powerful. It didn't, it, I wasn't upset that I spent all that time reading it. I was glad. I thought maybe some different editing would have helped and maybe make it more readable for a general audience. Because there's also a lot of like, there's a lot of theoretical jargon, um, which I thought maybe if he wants a general audience to read this, maybe tone some of that stuff down. Um, you know, he's an academic, obviously. So it's like a pretty academic work. But overall, I thought it was, um, it was an extremely strong argument that he's making. I mean, I do think one of the things that Aubrey's going to ask at some point here, um, who should read this, but I would flip it. Who did he write it for? And uh, I don't yeah. think he wrote it for the general audience. I, I don't think, think he, so I think he wrote it for museum directors. Yeah. He wrote it for, for people in yeah. his field. Yeah. He wrote it for the fields of anthropology and archaeology and for people who, yeah, he, who curate. I museums. think he wrote it for museum directors. Yeah. Trying to get them to really think about what does it mean to, and to be shame a them a little director. Bit. I, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, well, sure. no doubt about that. Yeah, but, <laughs> because nothing else. Because the sense I got was that nothing else is going to work. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Until and at, at some point, I was like, it was too dense, and so I went to the appendix, and I started reading the appendix. And so, since everything is sort of like you know, you know it was more clear so I can sort of see what's going on here. And then I could go back and to reading. So I thought, you know, so it's definitely for, for people who sort of do the same kind of work that he does. And so, you know, um, and I think like Jen said, like there were, <laughs> there were some things that's like, okay, I get it. It's, it's horrible. <laughs> it's horrible. It's horrible. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, um, you don't have to keep telling me how horrible it is. Because there are certain, you know, things, yeah. So um, we have to wait 109 pages for the actual sacking of the city, right? Exactly. Which is the That's why I was like, idea of the book. These other, you know, atrocities <laughs> are going on, and it was like, I got to put this down for a minute. But, um, but yeah, actually, no, going no. through the appendix and sort of seeing, sort of, because it was or organized, and I can sort of see where he's going, and then going back, and then when he started talking about small wars, that really um that helped a lot too yep. so um move me you know because otherwise i was gonna like i think i'm gonna have to sit you know i may have to say i only got halfway through but but uh, aubrey would have been like that's okay you can still join no. us on the podcast <laughs> I wanted to be good. well i mean i think that that's part of why some academic books do have a lot of repetition because yeah um they aren't necessarily read cover to cover Right. So you want to make sure that you're um, 
telling the story of each chapter with a fullness that you um, might not, you know, it's not the same kind of thing when you're writing a novel. Yeah. Also, he's using the the term in different ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Say military mm-hmm. militarist colonialism, colonialism. He he sort of defines it one place, then he he applies it in two or three other places. Right. So it, it feels redundant, but in reality, in his uh, chronicling, it's not actually that redundant. There are right. things that are redundant. Yeah. As, but the conceptual pieces aren't so bad for for me as mm-hmm. an academic. But there, I mean, the list of the guns was the one that really. God. Yeah, I just skipped, so I skipped over those parts. So when I saw that, yeah, you were like you know, skim, skim. You know, I got to the the list of the you know the the um, the offenders, those the A to Z, um, and yeah, that was a little I just bit skipped much over too. that. I also <laughs> I thought that could have gone into an appendix. Yeah, and yeah. You, know, That's, you know, the appendix was good. Actually, it was interesting to to um, the list of museums that you know that yeah, yeah. have the objects. And so I went, you know, went through that one to see um, how many the U.S. And there's a lot. I mean, it's the U.K. number one, right? Forty-five. Yeah. Um, U.S. You know, U.S. thirty-eight second. Um, Germany twenty-five. Nigeria nine. And then you've got Angola one. Australia, Australia. You know, with one or two or three. But you know, so here, you know, I think. You know, we're here in U.S. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot of museums that we should be talking to. There. One of the things about reading this book is, you know, I began to pay attention to the articles about yeah. what's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, the yeah. Germans yeah. just sent back a ceremonial shirt for the Glocota, mm-hmm. which reminds us that we are both a imperialist and a colonized yes. place. Yeah. Uh, and the Germans have also sent back uh, some of the bronzes yeah. to Benin, to Nigeria. Yeah, so the most, uh, yeah, the recent, not so much yeah. the U.S., right? But, uh, you know, other places, and so this. I mean, I think it is an interesting mm-hmm. thing that this book made me aware of this. Me too. Yeah, contemporary controversy that's really alive in the newspapers. Well, and that uh, we didn't learn any lessons, you know, um, as we started reading that. Well, as I started reading this, um, the knowledge that the Penn Museum had. Um, some of the children's bones from the move bombing, which was 1983. Right. You know, that's not a hundred years ago. That's right. today. You know, that that's today. And they just hadn't mentioned it. Yeah. Yeah. They've been taking it and using it for courses, but... One thing I thought was interesting is how a lot of these museums don't even know what they right. have. They've got a bunch of stuff in boxes yeah. stuck in their basement. They don't actually care enough or have the... Maybe it's that they don't have the capacity enough, but a lot of them are raising a lot of money. So I actually think that it's that maybe they don't care enough mm-hmm. to actually go figure it out, which is why the the arguments that like they are better safeguarders yeah, right. of people's histories falls just so flat, right? You're like, that's just absolutely untrue. The stuff is, much of it is just sitting uncatalogued. Like the British Museum cannot publish a full list of what it right. owns. And it's not like the British Museum is hurting for cash. And there was something that was like in a closet, you know, you know, there's something yeah. that's like, oh yeah, oh, I, they forgot it was in there with, you know, the brooms or something. And it shows that just the lack of value right. placed upon a, a people and yeah. their and their material culture to be like, oh, it's just sitting in yeah. a broom closet. Yeah. So one of the words that we have not brought up, but that is um, sort of pivotal to um, his theory of 
um, what he's doing and what the book is, um, is the word necography. Oh, yeah, yeah. Necro. Necro. Thank you. Necrography. Thank you. Got to get that. Oh. I have said it so many times. Necrology, right? There's two <laughs> in my head. I've yeah. said it so many times. I should have practiced it out loud. Because um, I think that's really an interesting point. You know, in the beginning, I had questions about. You know, this is really focused on the British. You know, and I was thinking about the controversy um, with Conrad's Heart of Darkness and Chinua Achebe. Um, that, you know, that, that even within this sort of like, you look in the heart of darkness, it's ourselves, but there's still this sort of anti-blackness in, in Conrad. Um, and yet I, I think he does something different in this book. Like, I think he's calling out the anti-blackness. Yeah. 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 You know, in that this is a story of knowledge gained through loss and death is really one thing I thought was great, and it might be in actually the necrology chapter, which is like toward the end, which is I guess like the study of versus the knowledge yeah. of thinking about myography and theologies, yeah, exactly. is the concept of you can't count up the harms, you need to count them back. Mm -hmm. And it's like a reverse engineering of what occurred that I thought was really interesting. We we uh what in the West, we like to count, count things up, mm -hmm. collect, make little, make little collections and, and count them all. And that, that, and that what's actually required is an, is a reversal is like an unpacking mm -hmm. actually, rather than just like a gathering up and acknowledging we actually have to unpack all the things and look at each sort of step and stage, all of these layers, right? The layers of narrative, the layers of the ways in which the objects moved from hand to hand, um, who paid for what, where did that money come from? What was the purpose of that of that transaction? Um, like David laid it out so beautifully earlier that like there were there are layers to the narratives. Like how was it acquired? Um, by whom and how? And then how are the stories told sort of at each layer of the object's transition or or existence? So I really like that idea of counting back, like the reverse engineering of something's history. One of the things that I kind of forgot, but the you know there are some beautiful photos. Yeah look and mm. so yeah, in, in many ways like you know kind of like say a picture takes a, a thousand whatever words but you know I mean the idea of primitive you know is kind of you know just doesn't hold up when you see the pieces mm -hmm. and the in you know, it's spectacular so if we could you know um I don't know if you're able to sort of put some of the pictures up for people to see Pretty impressive. You know, I think, um, you know, the one that I think also sticks out that, you know, it's a kind of a picture that, that you've often seen, you know, it's like an archaeological dig, you know, and the people sitting right. there. Yes. Yeah. You know, but in the context of this story, it's so easy to see that violence. Yeah. I mean, because there's nothing there. I mean, something has been burned down to the ground. It's literally. been completely raised. Uh, yeah, exactly. So I thought the contrast between the photographs that start the chapters mm -hmm. and then he has a interleaf with uh the really nice photographs yeah in some ways and and, and frightening but yeah, I th yeah. I, it is it Those was are more like the you know the masks and they're beautiful yeah, yeah. And so it was an intriguing contrast you know because the the ones that start the chapter are from this essentially the guy who was there who just took pictures 
of his daily events or of things that happen. And then the, the ones in the interleaf are this gorgeous, you know, representation of the objects. And then a few photographs of really awful stuff like the, like this blackface, the blackface. this reenactment yeah. that happened. This is blackface reenactment in 1897. They were already yeah. at that point, like reenacting a human sacrifice to, to, to bolster the justification, like the story that was being told. Uh, oh, immediately. Yeah. They, yeah. they, they sort of yeah. adopted this idea, cannibalistic fetish, mm -hmm. slaveholding, right. Uh, human sacrifice. I mean, it was how they defined this thousands years old kingdom so easily and quickly. So today, um, I wanted to to see how Benin was was pronounced. Right? Um, I, I don't do the the proper French accent. I think um, David is better about that. But um, is it Benin? Benin. <laughs> right on it. Yeah. Um, but the first, you know, how to pronounce, um, you know, this it's. A guy who does this sort of thing. He has a YouTube channel with how to pronounce, um, but he's French. He's saying, you know, it's a French speaking country, um, where voodoo originated. And then he goes on to talk about, you know, it was like, see, it's embedded. embedded. Yeah. You know, it was just yeah. like, yeah. Wow. Um, right there in your face. Um, Hicks missed that. He didn't talk about voodoo at all. Well, he talked about voodoo. <laughs> There's another 50 page chapter <laughs> on voodoo. You know, what's interesting to me, though, is that is that is a French pronunciation would be seen as the correct pronunciation. Right. Yeah, why, that's what I was wondering. At the time, pronounce it, which maybe we don't even know. I don't I don't know if we know that. No, because Benin is the UK and US pronunci English pronunciation. And I don't right. know what the proper pronunciation is. I couldn't find one that yeah. wasn't French or English. And do enough people survive from that time who know how it was even pronounced? Right, because they, you know, French is in their the, native language. Yeah, official language today, right? I feel yeah. like I looked it up. I'm just making a distinction between like an official language of like a current nation state versus like the original spoken right. language of the people at the time. Right. And maybe we don't. Although, even know. if the Oba is out there, yeah. and, and I would imagine know, he, there's got to be some people that have been around for. Yeah, years. yeah, it's just you know, got to be people who survived. We do know from you know native american tribes that you know the the empire will try to erase everything oh yeah. absolutely <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so we are running out of time so um is there something that we haven't talked about that we should before we do our final question well can i make one allusion please that is when i was in the middle of reading this uh actually at the beginning of it when i was reading it uh, on page 35 uh they talk about uh, he talks about who actually built much of the world and who created much of the world. And I was uh, just beginning and I'm still just beginning because of other things. Elizabeth Hinton's new book about uh, America on fire and the untold story of black rebellions since 1960s. And, um, it, 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 it's both raised the issue of, you know, how do we um, count Mm -hmm. Going back to the idea of counting, and um, and it also raised. I wrote at the top, "Who built America?" Mm -hmm. Right. We we have found over and over again how many things from the White House to the Washington Monument and on were built by slaves, um, by African slaves. Uh, and so, and I do think there is something here about these people who have these extraordinary skills to do things. 
material culture. Um, and we see them with the Benet bronzes, but it, it, it's throughout there that, you know, I, I had never seen those berms, you know, those, those, I had never seen a picture of those. I saw the, the photograph of the, of, of the, of the town with those incredible divided spaces. And I'm sitting there thinking, somebody that must have taken forever. Um, and, it, and as it turned out, it took a couple, you know, several hundred years to do that thing. Uh, and, and I do think that we, we constantly underestimate the contributions in Britain, in the US, in Africa of the people who just build stuff. Um, and we often, you know, it's that, that thing as a material culturalist, uh, which I am some of the time, you know, who designed the cemetery I'm studying, who designed the monuments I'm, I'm studying. I mean, it's hard. It's really hard to find most. I mean, you can find the designer usually, but finding out who put this and who did this sculpture mm-hmm. and you get to that moment where, Oh, all the, all the, all the civil war monuments came from this factory in Indiana. And, uh, and they were really good at it. They, you know, they created their craftsmen. Or in my case, you know, I was interested in all these new black granite uh, monuments that now have uh, these very elaborate CAD-driven images on them. You can get anything. You can give a, a funeral, a monument dealer, a photograph of anything, and they can now put it on your gravestone. And I was trying to figure out where did this come from? And, uh, you know, it's just all that stuff where you think about how these happen. This book is much more about that idea of a material culture. And if I would, the one thing that's sort of missing uh, among many others that we talked about is who made the bronzes? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we sort of take them for granted here as material objects, partially because everything about their 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 creation was destroyed, mm-hmm. and so it'd be very hard to find out. But they, you know, these things are spectacular. Yeah, they really I are. mean, they're not good looking. They're not. I mean, they are. They are some of the best art that's ever been produced in the world. And so it would be interesting to know, you know, who more about the people. Yeah, I think that was one of the the issues that I had while reading it is that you know some of that was gone. But I think. Um, some of that was missing, all of that was missing, but you realize how um, strategic yeah, it was. No, no. And and I think that's part of the story he's telling. Yeah. Um, and how important it is. I agree. But, you know, the line about the berms being um, longer than the Great Wall of China, it was just, you know, that really quick line, and it was just like, yeah, no it was fascinating. Okay. So, did you like the book? I mean, yes as much as you can like a book about such terrible Mm -hmm. things, right? Like there is real, real value in this book. And I found myself making lots of notes throughout it, which is a sign that it's a good book. Um, If I'm reading a book that I don't like, I'm just reading it and then I put it away and I never want to look at it again. But this is not one of those books. Um, I did find sections of it difficult. I found obviously some repetition and some thoughts I could, you know, sections that could get moved to the appendix and some um, very long but, sentences ve- oh okay so dan hicks does not like short sentences <laughs> at all and i would love an editor to come in and break up some of those paragraphs into separate sentences <laughs> there, there was definitely that um 
but I, I appreciated it very much. And I very much appreciated the fact that he was doing this work about his own, his own field, his own work, what he does for a living that he was willing to interrogate that with sort of such honesty and transparency, um, historically and in the present. So I, I did like it. Yeah, I think um, so a little bit of ditto. Yeah, so I, I don't think it's like necessarily, well, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of information here. I learned a lot, but it's also, it's very much, I don't think it's for like the ad, I don't think it's for everybody. Like, you know, I think, I hope this is sort of like um, somebody will read this and say like, oh, I'm going to make a version of, you know, that's more, um accessible yeah more accessible um and um and i think that i think there will be more books about it um and and so i you know thank him for that because you know obviously you know these beautiful things have been here for a long time and a lot of it i've never heard anything about you know some things i've heard of but you know you don't you know i didn't know there was this many pieces everywhere you know I thought there were a couple of things you know in you know major uh, museums and that was it um and I think um yeah I do think there's certain you know um chapters I think you know the necrology actually I think just that um that one I think would get you a lot you know I think you'd learn a lot from just that and um, but his, you know, the historian him in him is great because there's just so much um, that's there that I've never even, you know, heard of, you know. So and um, yeah, so it's good. <laughs> and now I'm going to like now that he has that list of like where different things are, I'm going to, you know, there's some place at LACMA. So I'm going to go to LACMA and see it. <laughs> so when I get next time I go back to Detroit, apparently there's a couple in Detroit. So I'll go. They have a, I don't know that Lack was actually showing them. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. Like, and if they're not, you know, that's an opportunity to like, you know, we want to see it, <laughs> you know, maybe yeah. there's an opportunity to, you know, to put something out there. And with um, uh, the recent articles about, you know, the museum that's being built in um, the Benin city, um, and, you know, so maybe they'll, you know, get them out of the closet or wherever people like forgot about it and, um, and more people will be able to see it and see the, like you said, the incredible craft, craft I can't say that word, <laughs> but, but it's unbelievable. Just the few pictures that are in the book, it's like, how could that be made by hand? I have seen some of them and they are in real life uh, even more remarkable than they are in the pictures. They're just stunning. I found the book uh, both foundational in the sense that it's just full of stuff. And I found it incredibly frustrating. Um, I think the anthropologist in him and the historian in him are at war. (laughs) And so Mm -hmm. he feels like as an anthropologist, he has to tell us everything. And as a historian, he has this incredibly great story that he leaves to go tell us all these things and then comes back to. And I think uh, that he really needed an editor. Uh, At the same time, there are moments that are just really beautiful. 
um, where he gets into the whole idea of the militarist colonialism, uh, the, the way he talks about restitution um, at near the end, particularly at the beginning and the end, is, I think, very, very interesting. And uh, I learned a lot. And, um, you know, I've been to East Africa. I've been to Tanzania. I've never been to Nigeria or West Africa. And so it was fascinating to hear about that as well. And I think we, I don't know enough about Africa. Um, and so I would say that I like the book, even though it comes with a asterisk. <laughs> I mean, I, I would agree. I, I, I learned a lot. And I think it informs, it will inform as well, my reading on race and uh, reparations and my thinking about, you know, decolonization uh, in the future. Um, I think there's, there's a lot to it. But yeah, I mean, there, there are definitely, you know, sentences that are half a page long that um, I'm reading and I'm thinking, wait a minute, this is all one sentence. Let me slow down. Um, So yeah, an editor... I often think that, but ultimately, you know, I think anybody who's interested, I I would hope would give it a shot. I think you don't necessarily have to read it chapter by chapter and you can skip over some sections like all the lists of things. And um, I went past all of the weaponry lists because it doesn't mean anything to me at all. Um, So who should read it? I mean, I, I think anyone who's interested in studying colonization, anyone who's interested in studying reparations and restitution. Anybody's interested in history, interesting anybody interested in art? Telling art. I think I think people who are getting into the fields of anthropology and archaeology, because I look back at my anthropological education, which was in the late 90s in undergrad, you know, nine ninety-four through ninety-eight, so I guess mid-90s. And um I see how much was lacking at that time when I look at what anthropologists and archaeologists are doing today. And I think that there is has started to be sort of a reckoning within those fields, a reckoning of how anthropology and archaeology have been used as weapons of white supremacy over time and have been used as justification. And, and the museum is sort of like one tool in, in you know, in that toolkit of um, how we how we categorize humans, how we how we create hierarchies, how we've created race science, how we did all of this stuff historically. And I think that there is, there are probably a lot of amazing young anthropologists and archaeologists out there who are really challenging those older ways of, of those fields. And I think that this book is a really great contribution to that work and to building much more useful and much more relevant and valuable fields of study. Um, rather than just sort of what he calls the hagiography of old old white colonialists, which much of anthropology, when I was studying anthropology, that is what it was. Um, and uh, I'm excited to see sort of like what the, what people are able to do to, to, you know, make those fields more equitable, more relevant, more meaningful for a, sort of a, a truly just society going forward. Uh, I would agree that with everything that's been said. I think that, um, it's it would be a hard book for many general readers there's a lot he's he's got a lot of balls in the air and he doesn't necessarily keep them all revolving really well 
um, at the same time as anyone who's really, I would, I think the primary group is people who are trying to figure out ideas of cultural appropriation, uh, restitution, and um, the role, not just of museums, but of all sorts of, of institutions in the way that we um, interact with the past. Um, to me, that's the the by far the most powerful part of the book. Um, and he does it over and over again, you know, and uh, Jen and, and Donna Jean and Aubrey have all said, you know, there's the one about no foreigners here. There's the one about the golf course. There's one, I mean, there's just a lot of moments where he gets us to think about why would we do that? Why did they do that? Why, you know, why would they say that? Um, and I'm going to talk about one of those after the next question. <laughs> David's done enough of these podcasts to know what's coming next. <laughs> All right, David, what is your favorite line or passage? So I have like five. <laughs> I'm going to try and be good. Okay. Uh, the one that just infuriated me was the one that Jen has already talked about, that the rape was the rescue. I just, I had, I actually had to put the book down for a whole day after reading that. Um, and then uh, the one that I found really lovely was on page 233 um, when he talks about this English jug, which of course, like, we, we can't leave with the Nigerians because it might be stolen. Oh, it was in Nigeria for 1400 years. That seems like a long time. I don't know about you. But then uh, the one that really got me is on page 46. Hugh Trevor Roper is a very famous uh, British historian. Um, he wrote uh, a lot of books and uh, sold uh, a lot of books. Uh, and, you know, we talk about how historians set uh, an agenda and then through their books, you know, we've talked about this before, about how U.P. Phillips and others in the 1870s and 1880s turned the Civil War from a war of uh, anti-slavery to a war union between the states that was about governance. Uh, and so at the bottom of page 46, Trevor Roper, in his very, very popular The Rise of Christian Europe, um, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It, the whole thing is just infuriating, but basically the key line is uh, perhaps in the future, there will be some African history to teach, but at the present, there is none or very little. There's only the history of the Europeans in Africa. And that, that's one of those places I wrote exclamation points next that, to it that is, That's one of those moments where you go, God damn, they, you know. Yeah. People really are a racist. <laughs> so that was my favorite line. <laughs> <laughs> That's again like ha having favorites in a in a book like this is um Sorry. it's really just like having impactful yeah. like like moments of impact exactly. So Jen, what was yours? Well, I have a couple. One of them I had already mentioned, which was about. Uh, it's on page 185. It's at the top. It's about oh, yeah. taking the living culture and, and destroying it so that you can show it in the past. I thought that was brilliant. But the one that I want to read is on page 132. And it is the rationale for the active use of erasure and replacement. 
Next to this one, I wrote what the actual F is what's written in my copy. <laughs> uh, so it's a piece of text describing an execution in a marketplace of six of the, of the, the chiefs. It was a show trial of, of the Oba, the destruction of the Oba. The Benin people on the execution morning had much to think about. Their king removed, their fetish chiefs executed, their juju broken, and their fetish places destroyed. Of their crucifixion trees, not a trace left. And this is the part I want to highlight. And all around evident signs of the white man's rule, equity, justice, peace, peace and security. Yeah. Mine also says WTF. <laughs> <laughs> what you also have to love about it, of course, is they murdered the chiefs, mm -hmm. executed them in their words. Isn't that a blood sacrifice? No, we can't possibly draw those parallels, David. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> we couldn't possibly make that kind of But you begin to understand why white supremacists are like, you will not replace us. You will not erase yeah. us, mm -hmm. right? Because the yeah. fear is that, you know, if someone else has power, you'll do the same thing that I want to do to you. And I've been doing, I've been doing millennia. Yeah. And Galway was quite the guy. So. Anna Jean, did you have a impactful yeah. passage? I just said, well, it's not really a passage, but it was just I one thing that I um page Donna Yeah, page two thirty one. So this is a little more positive, I guess. <laughs> um and ten thousand unfinished events. Um so on that um on 231 at the top where it says each return on a gallery is a reminder that each museum mu museum object is an unfinished event. And um, I don't know, I thought that was very positive, you know. Um, so yeah. I like that too. So that we can, you know, it, it's, you know, we can move forward, you know, and um, yeah. So that's what I was thinking, like, I want to go and see you know, on when it's an appendix and see what music, uh, museums nearby, you know, might have a piece and um, go and look at it, talk about it, ask, you know, questions about it. Yeah. You know, it's, I have so much underlined and dog-eared and starred and um, WTF'd in this book, but um, one of the passages that I wanted to read is actually not from Dan Hicks, but it's by Chile Membe page 213 it's at the top so it's a it's a long quote and he's talking about oh. negative moments but you know um he's talking about it's a moment when multiple old and recent unresolved crises seem to be on the path towards a collision such a collision might happen or maybe not it might take the form of outbursts that end up petering out whether the collision is actually actually happens or not the age of innocence and complacency is over Yep. Um, I starred that as well. Yeah. And, you know, it gave me the chills when reading it because it just feels like much of the civil rights movements of the past hundreds of years, um, it does feel like we're at a point where perhaps white people can acknowledge this sort of white supremacy, sort of this white supremacy that, that has in built our institutions and um, act without innocence and complacency. And warped our institutions. <laughs> um, you know, and the fact that Dan Hicks is, you know, that this book, you know, is out there. It's, it's very, um, it's really compelling. So on a lighter note, what are you reading next? I am reading Ecofeminism, 
Feminist Intersections with Other Animals and the Earth, edited by Carol J. Adams and Lori Grun. I've had it on my shelf for a while, and its time has come to be read. Kanji <laughs> and David, are you reading anything, or are you taking a break? I was going to say, this book took a lot of time for <laughs> me, so um, I have a lot of... Um, a lot of books but I haven't picked you know I haven't picked in my next read so send me something you know <laughs> all right well David you're reading America on fire it's coming slowly because I'm also reading Sylvia Federici's Caliban and the Witch and I'm also reading for my class uh, trying to find new stuff and I'm also reading our manuscript so a lot of readings going on. Lots right of reading going on. You have plenty on your plate, don't you? Yes. I am going to look up this Sylvia Federici book. Yeah, though. you should. It's fascinating. I got to say, you know, it's become a sort of. Uh, Anne found it. Somebody told her about it, and uh, my wife, and she started. It took her a while to read it because it's, you know, it's not easy. Uh, but then she started asking, telling people about it. She got excited and it turned out like five of her best friends are reading it at the same time or just finished it. So uh, clearly it's out there in the wind. Synergies. I like that. Feminist, I mean, it's, she's a feminist historian of this period. So it's a really interesting attempt to understand and to reinterpret. Alrighty. Well, thank you for Thank you, Aubrey. Reading this dense book, and, and I've really enjoyed having this conversation. Um, it's um, important. So, yeah. Always fun, Aubrey. Thank yeah, you, David. <laughs> Thank you, Donna Jean. Thanks, everybody. It's good to see your faces, Thanks, too. everybody. Yeah. Such a pleasure. And a big thank you to our listeners. We hope that you, our fellow book lovers, are enjoying these conversations. We'd love for you to let us know what you'd like us to read. Um, let us know what you think about our conversations. To find the whole suite of podcasts exploring governance and civics, search USC Pedrosian on your favorite podcast app. You'll find links to some of the things that we talked about today on our website, pedrosian.usc.edu slash book club. You'll find that we're reading The Atmospherians by Alex McElroy for next month. We are back to one a month, possibly two, but we're going to try just one a month. Um, so thanks again to my guests, to my co-producer, Jonathan Schwartz, and a huge thanks to our beloved sound supervisors, the brothers Hedden, Corey, and Ryan. We appreciate them so much. Signing off, I'm Aubrey Hicks coming to you from Southern California. So until next time, be good to yourself and your neighbors.